Well, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 364, and our guest is Joseph. And as this episode is released, Joseph is up north chasing sheep. And that's what we're talking about in this episode, which we recorded before his trip. How did this hunt come together? What is his prior hunting experience? How did that prepare him for this hunt? What questions did he have for us and more? So this is a continuation of our before and after the hunt series with you guys, listeners of the show. I can't wait to have Joseph get back from this trip and then record that follow-up episode to hear all about the story. Whether or not you have hunted sheep or think you may in the future, there are a lot of lessons that you can take away from Joseph's story and apply them to your own hunts. I hope that you guys enjoy this conversation. As always, if you want to get in contact with us, just send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Or if you have a question for the show that you would like us to answer on a future Q&A episode, which we do as part of our Monday Minutes, then look for the link in the show description and you can use whatever device you are on right now to leave us that audio message with your question. Right now, let's dive into this conversation with Joseph. Well, Joseph, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast, man. I'm excited to chat with you today. Ditto. We were just chatting. You're in Kansas. Is that where you were born and raised? Uh, actually up in Iowa, but, um, just based on some business opportunities, our family moved down here a few years ago. So, so we're doing this conversation in advance of adult sheep hunt that you have for this fall. Uh, and it's part of, as listeners have heard the before and after series. So, uh, I'm really excited to kind of chat with how this opportunity came about, um, how you're preparing for it and all that stuff. But before we dive into that, Kansas to like Alaskan doll sheep is a pretty good jump. <laughs> yeah. What is your hunting? What's your hunting background? When did you start hunting? Was it there in Iowa and now in Kansas or do you travel out of state? What's that looks like for you? Well, we, we haven't done too many out of state trips. I hunt whitetail every year um, here in Kansas. I've done a little turkey hunting. We do some upland hunting when we have time, but don't have a dog. So it's really just lots of miles with a shotgun in your hand, hoping something jumps up. Um, we've taken a few out of state trips. I went mule deer hunting in 19, just got an archery tag, went for six days, got my butt kicked and thought it was awesome. So <laughs> what state did you go do that in? Uh, Colorado. I was in, the oh. like Wimanook. I don't even know how to say it. Wimanook wilderness area. Okay. Something like that. And so I, it was a total fail of a hunt, but like I saw a bunch of bighorn sheep while I was up there and, you know, got into some mule deer, never got it done, saw elk. And that was kind of, kind of hooked me from there. Awesome. Did that like really cement your kind of like desire to continue to hunt the mountains? And as you said, saw some sheep, like, is that when you were really like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta keep getting adventurous, keep getting in the mountains and, and maybe chasing yeah. sheep. Did that mule deer hunt do it for you? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we put in first some antelope, uh, hunts over in Wyoming and some elk. And we, I think I did a truck hunt the year before in Wyoming. We shot an antelope. We went cow hunting for elk. And, um, that was a unique experience as well, but it wasn't, was not even close to the same thing. And so the whole backpacking aspect I think is, um, it, it's just a totally different thing. 
and uh, just what you see, what you experience. Cause I mean, I spent the first three or four days below timberline looking for mule deer, didn't know what I was doing. And a bunch of sheep hunters kept passing me and saying, well, the, the, the uh, mule deer are all up above the sheep. You need to keep getting higher and higher and higher. And so when I finally did that, I actually dropped my binoculars down the mountain, which kind of ended my, ended my hunt, but I was able to be up there. I ran into a bunch of ewes and lambs that were like 50 yards from me, saw a bunch of mule deer bucks, kind of figured out what was going on in the last two days and hiked out of there with my tail between my legs. But anyway, I was, I was hooked on that and I've started Googling sheep hunting and all that stuff and realized I was probably never going to draw a bighorn tag, especially being from Kansas. I mean, there's just, my best odds are to either go to Alaska and hunt for the price point or to go hunt in the unlimited units. And I, that's a kicker too. So, yeah. Any like sort of concrete, tangible takeaways from that mule deer hunt? Like, you know, you said you got your butt kicked, anything specific, like, Oh, I learned this in particular that comes to mind. Well, I, I learned that I didn't need to haul like two or three gallons of water the whole trip. Hmm. I, I realized that above 10,000 feet, I just don't sleep well. And I did not eat more than probably 1500 calories a day. Just couldn't consume it. Um, and then I had subpar boots, a subpar pack. If I would have shot something, I would have been screwed. I, I had a Kelty 65 Trekker, which is like a, it's a, uh, backpack for boy Scouts pretty uh-huh. much, which I just got for 30 bucks. And I actually shot a whitetail later that year on public land and had to carry the meat out in my arms because there was, oh I my couldn't gosh. back. <laughs> so I, I didn't realize how screwed I was if I actually was successful. Yeah. <laughs> I love uh, that though. Awesome. Cause there's like, I don't know. I feel like there's, there's certain guys who, who let this idea of they need to know everything or have everything perfect before they go. And it keeps them from going. Whereas like, I also fully admire guys like you of like, I'm just going to go and I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to make mistakes and I don't have the right stuff, but I'm still going into the mountains and having an adventure anyway. It's cool. Yeah. It's almost a better approach, you know, just go, go do it once and it might completely suck and you're going to suffer, but, but you're going to learn, you know, learn on the fly, learn quickly and make adjustments for the next time you go. Yeah, it was the, the whole trip was a cluster. Like I blew my pants out like the second day going over a bunch of deadfall. So like every time I ran into the sheep hunters, I was pretty much flashing them. It was, <laughs> it was terrible. And then like, I didn't realize I had what kind of were like hiking boots. They're more like tennis shoes. And once I actually got up into the castle rock and stuff like that, it just cut the boots to pieces. And I had you know, no actual idea of what I was getting into. So by the time I was out of there, my boots were falling off. My pants were falling off. But I was, <laughs> I was beat up and I was like, well, I, I want to do this again, but hopefully have a better experience. Yeah. Dude, what a riot. So how quick after you got back from that trip, you said you kind of started looking in, Hey, I live in Kansas. I'm not going to draw a non-resident tag, you know, unless I literally pretty much win the lottery the unlimiteds are off the table for me. Like how quick did you get serious about really booking a doll sheep hunting? Well, I started bugging my wife. I started talking about sheep nonstop to my wife and mule deer just like immediately after I got back, I'm sure I drove her nuts. 
And so after about six to eight months, I finally was like, would you actually care if I booked a doll sheep hunt? And she's like, go for it. So I, I was like, okay, I'm on it. So I, it was probably a year later that I actually booked the hunt. Okay. So like was that, was, that was probably 2020 then you booked? Yes, sir. Or? Okay. Yeah. I'm assuming this is from what you said, this is your first guided hunt as well then, right? Yes, sir. Okay. So when you started looking at, okay, I want, I want to hunt sheep. I, I'm assuming that doll sheep was probably part of the equation simply based on price. Is that correct? Doll sheep yeah. specifically. I actually looked at a bunch of the, the auction tags in the lower 48 and I was like, oh, those are about the same cost as a sheep tag in Alaska or a hunt there. And then I realized I was looking at data from like eight years ago and <laughs> they're all figures now. So yeah, I didn't realize how crazy that got. Yeah. Dude, it's uh, obviously it's like not linked to current inflation, but definitely it feels like the the hunting game in terms of booking hunts is as climbing rapidly as anything else in the last couple of years. Yeah, and I was comparing it to I was looking at Canada. It's ridiculously expensive there. I mean, they have great success rates and what look like awesome hunts, but it was just a bit out of my price range. Um, and then you know I spent a lot of time just calling outfitters, uh, asking guys questions on rock slide and hunt talk and trying to figure out what people's experience was. And it seemed like there were a lot of guys who went hunting and didn't see legal rams, which was really probably the scariest part of it, which made me, that's what led me to go to the Brooks range just because, I mean, it seemed like winter kill in the lower areas had some of those, like the Alaska range, it seemed like I don't know. And the wrangles, those guys that had some difficult winners. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to put all my eggs in that basket. Yeah. I was going to ask if you, as you get serious about booking and start this whole process of figuring out where and with whom I was curious if you settled on an area first and then started looking at guides and outfitters who operate in the area, or if you were pretty open and you just started vetting guides and outfitters specifically, and then selected that guide and outfitter essentially for who they were, not necessarily with the idea in mind. So you, it sounds like you settled on the Brooks and then it's like, okay, now who can I go hunt within the Brooks? Well, it, it was kind of the, kind of the other way around. I was calling guys in the wrangles and the Alaska range. Um, and they just had had some rough years and I, you know, I, I thought they were actually quite a bit more affordable because of the flights to get up to the Brooks. And so that's why I started down there. And after I heard some of the success rates, even from some of the more reputable guides, just that some years they weren't getting on a lot of legal sheep. Um, that's what led me to the Brooks. And after I got up there, it, everybody was about the same price point, but some of the guys had phenomenal reviews and had really good success rates. And, you know, when you reached out to the owner of the outfitter, they were quick to respond and you kind of knew who you were going to be hunting with, which you know, the owner's brother or one other guy. So that, that made it pretty easy. So you feel like in talking with the guys like in the Wrangles or the Alaska range, like those guys and outfitters are actually pretty upfront with the reality of dealing with a couple of rough years then. Uh, some of them were one of the, one of the guys, you know, he was, he, I would have gone with, but he was three or four years out on booking. I wanted to go sooner than that. He had pretty decent success rates, but he, he only took two guys a year. Um, the other ones, I kind of had to dig a little deeper, but I mean, it sounded like they were having close to 25% success with about eight different hunters a year. 
And that just seemed kind of like low odds to me. The final selection, if you want to call it that, or vetting of who you ended up booking with, and obviously feel free to share who you're going with and a bit about their operation. Uh, but I'd love to hear on really narrowing down and getting comfortable enough to, to book with them. Yeah, I, I decided to go with Tyrell's Trails, uh, Luke Tyrell. Um, I think why I decided to go with them was I, I called a few different times to different outfitters and he was good with getting back with me, good with shooting me emails. Any stupid question I had, he was pretty quick to answer. And, uh, you know, I, I kept asking, I was like about their success rates, which are, I believe over 90%. And I'm like, how are you guys averaging that? And he goes, well, he's, he pretty much told me we wouldn't be averaging that when people start missing and people show up in bad shape. He's like, it's, he said, we've pretty much been lucky. He's like, you know, he didn't take credit for it, said they were amazing or anything. He just said they, things had gone well for them and guys had hunted hard and they'd been successful. So I felt like he was honest with me in that portion of it. I, I know it's not a guaranteed thing, but I, I didn't want to put this much money on a hunt that um, had really low odds. So what were some of the, besides focusing on like success rate or opportunity, what are some of the questions you were asking these guys? Well, on the front end, I just wanted to know, was this a, are we going to be parking a car? Are we going to be flying in? How many days? Um, you know, if we, if we tag out early, if it, if it takes the whole time, you know, if it takes all 10 days, what's that going to look like at the end of the trip? Um, and just kind of wanting to know how they operate, how they handle things. Um, and I think one of the biggest thing was that they had a hunt concession. I talked to a lot of different guys who um, had overlaying areas with other people, or they were in an area that residents were getting to pretty quickly and were having sheep shot out from under them. And that seemed to be a big issue. So I wanted to make sure it wasn't a trip where you're seeing a bunch of people when, you know, you've flown to the, the ends of the Alaska and there's people everywhere. I didn't want to run into that situation. It's always been like a, uh, a disappointment for me, for sure. Like every Alaska hunt I've ever done, um, you know, you get back in there and you just, you're like, I'm in Alaska, I'm in the middle of nowhere. And then there's other hunters like on the ridge across from you. And it's like, how in the hell did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Their concession. Can you clarify that? And I'm, I, obviously I'm not expecting you to be the expert, but from your understanding of it, they have an area that are is it only them that's kind of licensed or able to operate in there? What is that? Yes. So any, any local resident can hunt the area, but they are the only business allowed to guide in the area. And, um, the, the concession they have from my understanding is situated to where it is, uh, pretty much a resident would have to fly into the area to hunt it, uh, which is going to eliminate a lot of people. I know there'll still, there's still a chance of running into other hunters back there, but um, no other guides, you know, no other walk-in hunters, but it should be, should be less traffic overall. And then did you say, so it sounds like a, a smaller operation. You mentioned one thing is you actually, it sounds like get to know either who specifically you're hunting with, or at least, you know, a couple of options, but that's one thing that until I started looking into guided hunts, it's like, you know, you can talk to an outfitter and love the outfitter and communicate with them. But then this whole idea that you would show up and you're not actually working with or hunting with the outfitter at all. And it's like, you get passed off to a guide that you didn't know, or didn't have a chance to speak with before. Um, it's, 
you know, the smaller operations or, you know, maybe at least a bigger operation, but that's upfront with like, Hey, here's who we think you'll get assigned with or who you'll be hunting with. To me, that's a huge benefit in advance. It sounds like you have that opportunity. Yeah. I've, I've visited with the, so the outfitter does most of the flying, um, his family's involved. So his brother, and then there's another guy that, that guide for him. I'll be hunting with one of those two guys. And, uh, I've actually reached out and texted with and emailed his brother on some more detailed, um, gear questions. Cause he's out in the field more often. Um, and that's one of the things I also appreciated when I, I talked to Luke, you know, I had a few specific questions about gear and he was like, you know what? I don't spend as many nights in the field as my brother does. Here's his phone number. Talk to him. He'll, he'll shoot you straight. So. Yeah. That level of like humility of just saying, yeah, I'm not sure, but like, here's a good resource that would know better is always really reassuring. So I guess let's get into that. Like your own, you're booked, you know, who you're going with, you got those basic questions answered. It's now been probably, you know, it's been over a year at this point. It sounds like since you've been booked and this is a hunt that's now, uh, really just two to three months out. What is the last year call it that roughly looked like for you? Um, I I've been just trying to nail down gear um, one of my biggest concerns was every, everybody on forums and on podcasts always says you need a synthetic bag. And I have a, a Cedar Ridge outdoors quilt, a zero degree bag. That's just under two pounds. It's, you know, downwater resistant. And I've used that in Wyoming and then Colorado, and I'm really happy with it, but I was concerned about the moisture. Um, so one of the things they asked me to do was to get a bivy. So I ordered a bivy, but I didn't know if I needed a, a synthetic bag. So I got a hold of them and, you know, his brother was telling me he hunts with a downwater resistant bag. He has had zero issues and, you know, he switched two or so years ago and he's really happy with it. So if the guide trusts it, I trust it. And so that was, that was one of my big questions. Um, rain gear was a big question. They're going to be providing the tent. I've, I've got a Nemo Hornet I'm pretty happy with, but, um, they say they've got something that's a little beefier than that. So we'll go ahead and use their tent. Um, and I'm still working on nailing down my boots. I've been training and I prefer, I even, the first time we went to Wyoming, I hunted in sneakers the whole time just because that's what's comfortable and had zero issues. Um, aside from like cactuses going through my tennis shoes. Um, so I'm, I'm still trying to nail down boots cause I've got the crispy Brixtles, which are like a, a stiffer, they call them their sheep hunting boot or whatever. And I, my feet just do not like stiff boots. So I'm, I'm still on the fence on whether or not I'm going to actually wear those up there. Cause they're, I mean, it's like wearing clogs. Uh, but if your feet don't like them, cause I'm similar, do not use them. Okay. Um, you're yeah. It's, I'd rather have cold, wet feet than painful blistered feet. That's my, my take on it. They seem to fit my feet well, but like every time I do an, ex, you know, like walk around in my pack in them, I pretty much almost totally unlace them and barely tie them on so that I still can rotate my ankle, have flexibility. And so it feels kind of pointless. Yeah. You're not really yeah. using them the way they're intended or getting the supposed benefit anyway. Yeah. It's funny. I, I was like considering for my goat hunt, going to something a little bit stiffer than what I have been using. Um, just knowing it's going to be a lot of time on more vertical stuff. And it's like, 
I've revisited a stiffer boot again and I was just like, nope, yep, still don't, <laughs> still don't like it. <laughs> uh, I think you're crazy for considering anything else. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, that, that was the final nail in that coffin, Steve. <laughs> Good. So how do you guys decide how, cause you guys have done way more mountain hunting. Uh, you know, I've only been, I've been in the mountains two or three times really. Um, how do you guys decide what's going to work at home that also works in the mountains? I know Steve, you get to actually hike on a regular basis, but Mark, uh, when you're not in the mountains every weekend, like how do you, man, you got it. The, I mean, there's no way to figure out, um, yeah, what boots going to work other than get miles in them. And you can't, you got to get off. Um, you got to find some type of terrain to hike through. Uh, whether I think I mentioned on a podcast once, um, like hiking a, I don't know if you have canals around you, but hike a canal bank for like three miles where it's kind of steep. If it's, everything's just completely flat around you. Um, or you just got to find something. You got to put some miles on it. Some of the guys we're getting ready for our Alaska death hike come up here in three weeks. And some of the guys are even, um, they were trying out some new boots and, and one of the guys like, I loved him up until mile 15, but from mile 15 to mile 20, he was on a long training hike. He's like that. My feet just absolutely got destroyed. Um, so it's a, it literally like it took 15 miles of rough terrain hiking to figure out that the boots finally kind of fell apart on them. Um, so just, there's no way to do it other than go get some long miles in and, and 15's a, a little aggressive, but you know, you need to be able to put a pack on, get 50, 60 pounds in it and just get on some type of terrain. I don't know if you have like, um, a dried up riverbed that's kind of rocky in the bottom or just, you got to figure out how to get, not just walking a concrete path, something with some slopes and rocks to it. Yeah. Um, uneven footing or yeah, side uneven hill. Footing. Yeah. And just go hike and do it with a pack. Um, do it with the heavier, the better, um, something that, you know, like 50, 60 pounds, something you could go hike five to 10 miles with. Um, cause that's gonna, um, it's gonna any, basically like any slop in the, in the foot. Um, I just did a hike yesterday. I was t- testing out a pair of shoes and, uh, at home they felt great. But then once I got up on the hill and got on a side hill and then you add 60 pounds in the pack, it's that much more weight, like pushing on your foot in the inside the shoe. And my foot was like my heel and the ball of my foot got hot in that. And so I was pretty quickly able to like, yep, that's not going to work. Um, so yeah, that's the only way to do it. There's no, there's no shortcut. You could, you know, I guess I could say if you like wore them to work one day and they weren't just completely comfortable the entire day, that's a good sign that, uh, they're not going to work for you on a long trip. Um, but yeah, just get some miles in them. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And, and the other thing is all these like four flex boots or, or these mountain boots are freaking heavy. Like, yeah. I mean, compared yeah. to a Laponia or just like tennis shoes, I mean, everything is heavy. So I'm, I'm going to try out the Laponias and then I'm going to, if that doesn't work out, I'm probably just going to go back to some type of just easy leather hiking boot that's yeah. short. Yeah. The Laponias, um, they don't fit my foot well, but they, there are quite a bunch of guys that wear them and do really like them. Uh, that's a good, I think it's kind of a good compromise boot there. Um, I did my sheep hunt on the, in the Alaska range with a Loa Inox pro, and it's basically just a Gore-Tex shoe, um, and absolutely loved them. Um, I'm, I may refer, I'm, I'm still constantly looking for the perfect shoe for me. Um, but, uh, I may default back to those ones this year if I need to. 
So, cause I know they've worked in the past and that's a so If you look at that, you're, it's, it's just a, a, a mid Gore-Tex shoe basically. Okay. And I had another question. I mean, I listened to your podcast a couple of times and you kept talking about croc life. And oh yeah. One of the things I was thinking was if I don't practice in tennis shoes, I, you know, it's, if your ankles are weak or whatever, that's not going to go over well, but were you guys using actual Crocs, like the name brand, or were you buying the cheap dollar store ones that are way lighter? Um, I used, uh, let's see, I'm not, I used actual Crocs. Um, I don't want to take it because that heel strap, I, I think you'd be totally fine, but the heel strap is the one thing that's absolutely critical for that working. Uh, Cause if that were to blow out, then, you know, you'd be resorted to like duct tape and cutting up rope and something to keep your foot inside there. Um, so I used the actual croc brand and yeah, they are heavier, but they worked, they worked fantastic. Mark, you use, um, off brand ones, which are actually sitting in my house. Cause you left them here from the bear. Hunt. Oh, did I? Uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> That's lucky to tell you. <laughs> Steve just uh, inherited a nice pair of off brand crocs, um, <laughs> that do have the rear strap. Yeah. I've, so I've, um, I had some, I think from Walmart, like years and years and years ago that were really light, but didn't have the heel strap. And that was fine. Like I did our our hundred mile death hike in them just because I knew it was like, I'd basically had them for quick crossings. Um, but for anything where you're expecting, you know, longer crossings, deeper, swifter crossings, like I wouldn't take something without a strap to Alaska like that. Um, and then, yeah, the ones, those ones at your house, Steve, we just used on the bear hunt. I can't remember what they were from, um, but they were some sort of off brand with a strap, but still, yeah, I think three, four ounces um, lighter. So um yeah it's yeah. It, the strap to me is the main thing like making sure they fit enough that in swift water you're not really risking them coming off yeah for and there's um the uh, you need the adjustment on the heel strap so that you can actually tighten the foot tighten your heel into the croc uh, if you plan on doing miles with it like the the ones mark you have i don't i don't think have a tightener on the heel um so yeah totally fine to cross a river but how we used them where we literally did that entire 15 mile pack out, I would, you definitely would want to be able to tighten up that heel. So, um, but yeah, they're fantastic. I will absolutely be, I mean, we're going to take them on the death hike. I'm going to take them on the, uh, my sheep hunt this year. Cause it just opens up, um, it opens up the terrain in a whole new way. As long as you're okay with not being able to feel your legs from the waist down after walking through that stuff for a while. Um, it certainly made that pack out on Tyler sheep substantially easier also check with your guide because if he's not packing them there's no reason for you to pack them um because okay. yeah it's it uh does no good if, if only one person can walk through the creek and the other one can't then uh, you might as well just be with the guide okay you mentioned shelter that you were going to use what they provided were there other things on the gear list that you know they either said hey you don't have to bring this or you shouldn't bring this um you know that they're supplying yeah, one of the things is I've got like the MSR Pocket Rocket little uh, stove top. They've got their own cooking system they use that's lightweight. So um, I'm still going to bring mine, but I'm assuming that's not going to actually go out in the field with us. The other thing that they said was optional was glass as far as a, a spotter. And I don't want to be on my binos the whole time. So I decide I'm going to bring a spotter either way. So I, I kind of went with the lighter side of that. I went with the the Koa 553. So it's nice. still light, but I think it'll 
get the job done for what we're doing. So you, you prefer to glass through the spotter? Um, when I have the uh, bone scope attachment on there, I do. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Gotcha. Yeah. I would say um, I, in my opinion, just one scope for the group is completely adequate. Okay. Um, just because they are white animals and they're relatively easy to spot. Uh, so I just had some eight by 42 binos and then um, our guide was packing us uh, the spotter. And then Tyler and I were kind of packing the tripod, bouncing that back and forth. Okay. But just because it's not, if it was a, a mule deer hunt or um, say a stone sheep hunt where they're brown and gray and they blend into the rocks, then absolutely a spotter's huge in that. But they're just white animals that the majority of the time I was just using my eyes. Um, it's like, oh, there's a white dot and then put the binos on it. And like, oh, that's a sheep. And then, oh, that's a sheep with horns uh, or looks like a good, nice ram. Let's uh, pull out the spotter and zoom in on them. That's okay, kind of how so it goes. You're not doing a whole lot of, you know, there's like, at least in the Alaska range where the sheep are living, it's not like you're, there's bushes and trees and foliage up there that they're hiding behind. They're just out in the wide open rocks and you're looking at white dots. So the biggest thing you got to decide is, is it a white rock or is it a sheep? Um, and binos are completely adequate for that. Okay. So you might as well save, you know, you got four pounds right there. You could save out of your pack. Did you guys still bring your uh, tripods to glass with your binos off of? Or just- um, again, I didn't um, just because they're, they're just, you know, I could just sit on my butt and use my knees. You just don't, I don't know. Is it just a different type of hunt because it's not as intensive uh, in the glass? It's because it's really like you come to a basin within, you know, 10 minutes, you're going to know for the most part, there might be a sheep bedded behind a rock that you don't see, but uh, for the most part, you're going to know there's sheep there or not. If it was a mule deer hunt, it'd be like, okay, I've come to this big basin. I'm going to sit here for six hours and still not see everything living in here. Um, so it's just a way different glassing experience. Um, at least where I was at in the Alaska range. Gotcha. Um, this I've been shooting off of a tripod this year with this new chassis gun I've got. Um, and I, I need to go, I'm going to shoot a bunch this summer and play with that some more, but that added versatility is, is pretty handy. So I may pack a tripod this year, mainly primarily for shooting. Um, and then, uh, and then also if I've got it, I'm going to pack my binocular adapter so I can put the binos on it. Okay. Yeah. I'm, the, I'm kind of in that same camp with my goat hunt of, figuring out where we land with a spotter one thing to me um uh and this is a, you know personal decision but it's like i kind of like the idea of having two spotters along and there'll be three of us so that doesn't necessarily mean i'm packing one for example if tyler is but you know if one guy wants to be truly in the spotter on a goat but then i love the idea of being able just to phone scope especially even a shooting scenario or just to have some footage of the experience and some of the animals we look over so that's a discussion i'll be having of like with my primary guide, Mark of, you know, is it his preference for some reason, if we theoretically had one spotter to not have that be set up with a phone scope and, you know, maybe maybe he wants to be right in the glass or something like that. So those are some things to, to maybe consider that are personal. But for me, it's like, I I want that even just for my own memories of um, just having some footage of the animals and potentially a shot or something like that. So that could come into play with, deciding how many spotters are along for sure. 
Yeah, it's I, I, I think I'm in the same boat. It's it's one of those things I just don't know. I, I'm still on the fence. I'm gonna bring a bunch of stuff that I don't expect to take just in case um we decide we need it. But I've I've trying to cut weight everywhere. So if if I get up there and the he says, you know, I've got a good spotter and does the same thing you said, Steve, about, you know, they're white animals. This is pretty easy. We just need to decide legality. Um, then yeah, I'll just leave it there at the yeah. leave it there at the camp. Um, I have been shooting off my tripod as well, and I've, I've got a, a light little gun I'm shooting off of it, and I've I've had issues with it personally. I don't know why. I feel like it affects my groups, or it's a little shakier. Hmm. I don't know if I just need a heavier tripod, or or what the deal is, but I've I've done better shooting off my pack than I have shooting off the tripod. Yeah, I mean, there's there could be it could be the tripod, just the st- stability of it, but it's also, I mean, there's definitely it's a technique. It's something that I feel like I'm still refining. But even from the when I very first started to the experience I have with it now, it's like certain little things of um, body position and alignment, and even tripod setup, like which direction the legs are facing, and that's more critical for what happens uh, upon the shot with like recoil and coming back on target. But it's definitely not as simple as like, Oh, I'm just going to slap my gun in a tripod. Haven't never done it and stand behind it. And it's magic. Um, there's some technique to it for sure. What, um, since you mentioned a, a lighter rifle setup and that, what, what, what is your setup? What rifle you have? What cartridge you shoot and all that? Well, I, I am currently shooting a savage lightweight storm in six five creedmoor and i'm shooting 120 grain barns ttsx's um and that whole setup's coming in at a little under seven pounds like six eight or six ten i also have the uh savage ultralight and 300 short mag and i'm i'm wanting to bring that but i have not been able to get my loads where i'm happy with them for you know, five, 600 yards. I, you know, I'm a little out of minute of angle. And so it's just, I'm just shooting better with the Creed more now and it's lighter. So currently that's what I'm taking. Um, I'm going to do a little bit more load development before I make a final decision though. Have you talked Here. with your guide outfitter about, uh, kind of average shot distances or even what they prefer to limit clients to? It sounds like they want to, they definitely want to keep you under 500, which is one of those, I shoot the Creedmoor out to 500 pretty well. And it's, you know, the, the 300 short mag, I put a night force on, it's a bigger, beefier gun. And if I'm less accurate with it, the only reason I'd bring it is if the, the opportunity to shoot a grizzly arrives. So, um, that was my reason for getting the gun in the first place. Um, just having a little more wallop, but, um, I don't know. I keep going back and forth on that. Steve, I'm waiting for you to like hop in and sing the praises of a Creedmoor. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I mean, if you want to shoot a, a grizzly, I got nothing. Yeah. Like uh, I'm not, obviously that's not the ideal gun for a G bear. Um, but yeah, I'll be taking my Creedmoor up and have all the confidence in the world. that's going to put down a sheep easily. So, um, and you're shooting. Yeah. I like the, the Barnes bullet you're shooting. That's a great choice. And I'm shooting a 125 grain copper bullet myself. So, uh, yeah, I think that's completely perfect for the sheep. Um, but yeah, if you're wanting to shoot a grizzly, that's a different, you know, you may also just talk to the guide and, uh, cause he's going to be packing a gun. They got to, I think legally have to pack a gun to back you up. Um, and there may be a chance you could shoot his gun at camp and he's packing a 300 win or something like that. And you could, you know, practice with it at camp and shoot a bear with his gun. 
Okay. Yeah, they, they said they didn't want uh, you shooting at a grizzly bear with anything under 160 grains um, that wasn't mono metal. They wanted to they wanted to make sure you're mm. through whatever you hit with the grizzly. And so yeah. my main focus is sheep. I picked up the extra tag just in case because they said it was a possibility. But I, you know, I'm, you know, pretty much focused on sheep. Gotcha. Yeah. It's definitely a possibility in the brooks. But yeah, I'd, I'd be like you. It's like sheep is the sheep is the focus for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier part of the discussion you were asking is your vetting outfitter was kind of the logistics of the hunt, transportation, et cetera. Can you just walk us through like super high level? What does that look like? I, I think in some of our emails, we were actually checking, uh, chatting about packs initially is how you and I got in contact. And mm-hmm. that's what eventually led to this conversation on the podcast. But it sounds like it's a legit 10 day backpack hunt. Is that correct? Well, it, what we're going to be doing is I've got to fly from Fairbanks out to a lake up in the brooks. Then we will fly from that lake to a landing strip in the brooks. And then we will, um, we'll be out there with five days of food. And if we need to move locations, I think we can, but I think there'll be another five days of food dropped off via the airplane, wherever we're at, if we're just depending on what's going on. So that's my current understanding of it. It may change when we get there, but that's what they've been doing. You, uh, when I hear Brooks, I just always think of flying through Kotzebue. You get to miss that glorious opportunity. <laughs> Such a weird little place, man. Yeah. What, um, what are you doing on the fitness side? Um, I, you know, I, I've spent the last couple of months doing the wrong thing. I was, uh, lifting weights, spending a lot of time in the gym and I, I put on more muscle than I wanted to. So I've gained like 10 or 15 pounds. Mm. I'm, I'm a pretty short guy. I'm like five, seven. And right now I'm weighing like 190. And, uh, I feel like my packing, cause I've, I've been going up and down stairs. There's a college here in town that has 77 steps. And so I'll, I'll do that for about 40 minutes with a 45 pound pack. Um, I have to keep a pretty slow pace to do that for the whole time. So I'm, I'm slowly improving on that. And then the other thing I'm doing for legs is I was doing a bunch of heavy squats and I don't think that was helping as much as I thought it would. So I've, I've been going to step ups. So I'll, I'll try and do about as many step ups as I can in about 20 minutes. So I did it yesterday morning with 45 pounds and I was, you know, I got about 350 step ups in. So it's, I think I still have a long ways to go to be in sheep shape. Gotcha. It's kind of running out of time. Yeah. Um, the only thing I would, I don't know if you're doing this, but when you're just be, um, when you're hiking those stairs and you're doing step-ups, try to be dynamic, not don't just go straight up and straight down, like do an entire flight up and down with your feet pointed 90 degrees. So you're stepping sideways, right? Um, do an entire flight where you step, I don't know how wide the staircase is, but step like on the far left of the staircase and your next step, like really stride out to your right and step up. Okay. Um, just really work. Cause that's when, you know, just walking straight up and down is great. But when you get in the mountains, it's, that's never the case. You're working all these extremes of the muscles, you're side hilling and climbing. So just be, be dynamic uh, when you're doing those workouts. Okay. Do you guys have like a, kind of a PT test, like in your mind, like how many step-ups, how many flights of stairs somebody should be able to do just as a base level to get started. Cause I, I keep, you know, reading different 
different guys' workouts, it seems like everybody's doing something different to try and get in shape for the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's one of those things. It's, I know I need to put miles in. I know I need to put time in under the pack, but it's, there's so many different options of what you can do with your time. It's aside from step ups and stairs, that seems to be here in the flatlands. What's easiest to do. Yeah. Mark. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's a, like a, a standard that, like there's some standards that I think could be helpful, but I don't think there's like a true standard that would be a check in the box of like, I'm ready because any, any standard we try and come up with is probably going to be limited to a relatively short time. Right. And so if we were to say, you know, X step ups in 20 minutes or 40 minutes or one hour, that, that trains an energy system for you to perform for 20 minutes or 40 minutes or one hour. And in all reality, that's okay. But what if a guy can like perform incredibly well for 40 minutes, but then is so gassed, he's, he's pretty much tapped. Right. And that's just a different, it's a different energy system. It's a different demand on the body than a five, seven, 10 day hunt. And so I think, like you said, it's more than anything, I try and build total cumulative time. Um, either mileage or time kind of as I get closer to a hunt. And so I'm just trying to get as much time under the pack, like you said, or as many miles either hiking or, um, you know, track the total number of minutes or hours you get in step ups, like per week, even. Um, and then something I try and do strategically is like do some, do some back to back harder efforts. Um, and so it's like, from a longevity perspective, yes, you want to do a hard effort and be sore and allow yourself to recover so that you can perform again. But as I get closer and closer and, and try and build that demand, it's like, I want to force myself to perform when I am tired or sore. So maybe that means I do like a really long hike or a really long step up session one day. And the next day I'm still kind of feeling that, but purposely try to then re-engage and on tired legs. Um, continue to go right because at the end of the day if you talk like a five seven ten day sheep hunt that's really what you're dealing with so i almost don't care what you can do in 20 minutes or 40 minutes because that's just it's a drop in the bucket um in terms of the total demand of a hunt like that so yeah i would i personally if i were you i would like you know like if you still want to squat you know a, a day a week heavy and kind of maintain that max strength that's great but I would transition to look instead of, um, instead of max strength and just start looking at some strength endurance stuff, um, and mix in like some single leg movements. So do like some single leg lunges, um, some Bulgarian split squats, and you can do those weighted, um, but lower that weight, go to higher reps, look for that muscular endurance. Um, there's actually, a a recent, um, podcast I listened to from the guys at uphill athlete on muscular endurance. Um, and I can send it to you after this and then leave a link in the show description, but it, it was super helpful. Um, and talked about how even not maximal strength and also not just cardiovascular system, but that muscular endurance paired with then sufficient cardio conditioning is really the key for longer sustained efforts. Um, so it'd be a great one to maybe tune into and to kind of give you some ideas 
but yeah, I, I wish there was a standard. I mean, Steve, we've even talked in the past of, I think it was before the hundred mile of death hike of trying to make sure that guys could complete a certain uh, distance with elevation for a certain time type standard. I still do that hike, you know, once a week, it's, uh, you know, 50 to 70 pound pack, four miles, thousand feet and do it, uh, within an hour. So you're basically got to maintain a four mile an hour pace and it's not freaking easy to do, Um, but to me, that's it. And then you got to be able to do that. And then the next day, not be sore or not be so sore that you couldn't like throw the pack back on, maybe not maintain that pace, but get out and hike again. So, but that's not possible for, you know, everybody. Um, that's certainly kind of a, yeah, that's a tough test. Um, for me, I think that Mark, you were getting, you're, you're certainly talking about it, but to me, it's the success of your sheep hunt will be come down to your endurance. Um, it's not, yeah, it's not how fast you can climb the mountain once, but it's, you got to know your limitations when you're, you know, you're in the bottom and it's 3000 feet up to that basin or up to the ridge to look into the next basin. Um, you got to know your capabilities, take your time, like, you know, work within your limits to get to the top of that, to understand that you got to climb that, come back down and then do it again the next day. I think where probably a lot of guys get themselves in trouble is, um, they're, they, you know, maybe they're feeling good. Uh, and they climb that thing as fast as they can. Cause they're excited. They drop down it. And then the next day their legs are so sore that they can't hunt. Right. So you got to approach the entire hunt as a, a 10 day workout and just work within your limits. Um, and then you just gotta, when I had told you about work, like, um, being dynamic in your movements, cause when you get to that mountain, um, you know, you may be great at just doing stretch step up straight up and down, but when you start slipping and sliding and, uh, you're working all of a sudden you're working muscles that even though you've been hiking up and down stairs that you, you're not, you haven't worked those, those exact smaller muscles, kind of more stabilizer ones, especially like up in your hips. Uh, then yeah, you do that. And then you wake up the next day and you're too sore and you tell the guide, like, ah, I'm just, I can't do it today. We need to have an easy hunt. Um, that's what you don't want to happen, uh, in my opinion. So do you guys recommend, so like you said earlier, Mark, about back-to-back difficult days are you guys i mean are you thinking five days a week on the legs is a good number are you is that too much too little like something every day something every other day yeah i think it could be five days a week is pretty good but then they're not all the same so like for me personally i'll do a mix of um so hiking with weight for me some trail running and then some muscular endurance stuff that's either more quote, if you want to call it gym based, but I don't go to a gym. I just do in the garage, but like things like I mentioned those Bulgarian split squats or lunges or jumping lunges or things like that. So I end up hitting legs five days a week, but with different demands and in different ways. Um, and so some days are going to be like lighter and faster. Maybe that's no weight in the trail run. Some days are going to be heavier and slower. Um, you know, shorter and more intense, like those, if you do like a circuit of, and these are actually in the free training program, we have now they think about on the website. Um, so it's just exomountaingear.com forward slash train T R A I N. Um, but like doing, uh, like a circuit or repeats of like, uh, one of them is called the Mastodon complex, I believe. And one's the Rhino complex. I could have those names wrong, but again, they're in the plan, but you'll do like, um, you'll do lunges with a little bit of weight, like with dumbbells in your hand and then jumping lunges 
and then you'll drop the weight and go straight back into lunges and then jumping lunges. And so maybe you do like five on each leg. So you do like five lunges with the weight, five jumping lunges with the weight, drop the weight, five lunges without five jumping lunges without. So that would be like one round and then give yourself um, a little bit of rest and then do like five rounds of that. Right. So that's working the legs, but that's working the legs a bit different than just going out and hiking with the pack, which is also a bit different than maybe going out for a run or something like that. Um, so it's really just kind of getting that, that variety in. I mean, one of the things that one of the podcasts we've done, this has been years ago at this point, but it's always worth going back to and we've actually re aired it before. Cause it was so good, but we have a show called how to hike heavy. Um, and it was with, uh, a guy who has a, a I believe a doctorate in um, exercise science and worked with the military a ton on their rucking programs, but he really talks about, um, you know, you have the variables of time or distance and then you have intensity. So kind of like how, how hard you're going or what pace you're going at. And then you have the variable of weight, how much weight are you carrying? And so if you, you can kind of pick two of the three and neglect one, right? So you could go super intense and super heavy, but not for very long, or you could go kind of heavy and long, but not at a very intense pace, or maybe you go pretty intense, but with a lighter weight for a decent duration, right? So you have like these three things and it's kind of like the whole, you can have something good, fast or cheap pick two, cause you can't have all three. Right. <laughs> um, so think of that, like with your training with, duration, intensity, and then weight, um, added pack weight. So yeah, yeah. check out the training program. If, if you're looking for some of those ideas on in particular, the non-hiking protocol, I'll call it like, so those lunges and other things. And then, yeah, I would mix up, uh, duration, intensity, and pack weight for your hikes. Yeah. I've been spending too much time just lifting weights and it's, I, I can tell that that is not helping me develop on the hiking side of things whatsoever so i'm needing to switch some stuff up yeah we've definitely um doing our death hike you know every year with uh you know, 20 to 40 guys some years they the longer leaner guys almost always crush the, the guys that spend more time doing in the gym you know gonna have bigger biceps and you know bigger thicker thighs as a very pretty broad rule they, they can do all right for a little bit, but like the, the energy required to move those muscles over the long duration of a, of a hunt, uh, hike, um, they just don't do as well. And it's these, the longer, leaner, skinnier guys that you think like, ah, oh, they don't look like they're in that great shape. They just crush it. They, they breeze through the whole thing. So I'd certainly focus on, um, long lean muscles versus muscle mass. Anthony O'Berti, if you hear this, we still love you. Yeah. <laughs> one of the guys that no, goes Anthony, on the death hikes is, does he listens to the podcast yeah. but he does man he crushes it but you look yeah. at him he looks like a bodybuilder but he yeah crushes yeah. It. yeah but he also um he does the miles he does the miles he he yeah. certainly doesn't just spend the whole time in the gym and then um he's actually the guy I referred to that said like oh i tried these new boots and they were great till mile 15 and then at mile 15 my feet just started killing me um, so he's out there freaking hiking right now and getting after it. And, um, so certainly there's exceptions, but, um, there's a general, general rule. That's not the case. Yeah. But that's a good point. Cause I think if you go back to like, he would echo what you said, Steve, cause I remember on the hundred mile death hike, he was like, man, I need to train differently. And he learned yeah. that lesson and now he does. So what are, um, Joseph, 
this is like always a, I don't know. I'll just throw this out there and see where your head goes. But like, what are your expectations for this hunt? Because you talked about success rate and obviously it's a hunt. Not everything's tied to success, but like, just where's your head at and thinking about it, the investment of time, money, energy, like where's your, yeah. Where's your head at just going into it with expectations and, and what you're hoping to get out of the experience. Um, I, I know I said a lot about success rates earlier on, but one of the things is uh, I keep thinking about some of the, some of the views I had and some of the things I saw, or when I go into the mountains, some of the things I've seen and just that some of those drainages you're never in again, you don't get to see them again. And they just kind of stick in your mind. And I feel one of the things that led me to do this is that I think this is an experience I probably won't ever have again. I'll get to see country. I'll never see again. It's I, I'm just hopeful. It's beautiful. Um, you know, I want to experience it. And even if I walk off the mountain without a sheep, I want to know that I could, I hiked hard the whole time we hunted hard and that we, you know, did what we could as far as the success side of things for an animal, but just, uh, I just want to be able to enjoy the entirety of the trip and not be sucking wind the whole time. And, you know, I guess worried about fitness level. So trying to be in shape and just enjoy the views, enjoy the, the experience of it all. I think, um, when we had Dwayne, who's the outfitter for the sheep hunt that I did and am doing this year, um, we talked to him, like, what was the most, what keeps, like, what's the key ingredient for success? And it, above all, it was just a positive attitude. Um, and never, like never getting down, always being upbeat and just don't let yourself when the hunt gets hard, um, you know, don't let yourself get down and, and want to quit. Uh, and that, like I said, it, it's a lot of that just feeds right into what you just said there. Just stop and enjoy like the Brooks range is absolutely gorgeous. You're going to be seeing caribou and grizzly bears and sheep. And uh, it's just a phenomenal place. So you just got to stop and be like, man, I am lucky to be alive this is amazing. I'm here and enjoy every second of it. Cause those, those trips go fast and then you're going to be, you know, for the next uh, five years or whatever it is. till you get back up there and do another trip. You're going to be, you know, um, remembering every moment from that trip. So don't waste a second of it with a negative attitude. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Joseph, it's, uh, man, I went by fast, but do you have anything else for us before we let you go? Yeah, I've, I've got two, I guess, uh, pack questions. One of them is, is it normal for guys to, do you guys just totally not recommend that use the side pouch for the, so I've, I've shot one elk and when I was packing it out, I just stuck the butt of my rifle in the side pouch and just use that side strap there and just sucked it to the pack. I didn't have the rifle carrier. Do you guys, is that an issue to do that for long periods of time with that pouch? No, I don't think no. so. The the downside would be that um, you're just you're dealing with a fixed bottom, right? So as you drop your rifle in there, your buttstock hits the bottom of the pocket. It just won't go any lower and just leaves more barrel overhead. Um, so that's a potential downside. I just always encourage guys to think about. But for something like the Brooks Range, you're not you know moving through timber or a bunch of brush uh, in general. Like maybe yeah, on a bottom for a little bit you could be, but um, yeah, you're not really cruising through timber. There's there's no real downside to doing it. Um, you're getting some extra protection, um, sacrificing a little bit of access, but you kind of mentioned there in the context of a pack out. So, um, I don't think so. Um, there's definitely, 
you know, I think we even have a video on the YouTube channel of like four or five ways to carry a rifle on the pack. That's certainly one of them. Uh, there's just, uh, yeah, kind of different pros and cons to think through, but for this hunt in particular, I wouldn't see that as an issue. Steve. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. The, the only, um, I like the rifle carrier when I'm packing out meat, just, you want, you want all the, as much mass as you can, as close to your back as possible. And if the bags, you know, uh, if you got a, sheep meat and or sheep cape back there in the backs you know four or five inches away from from the your back now um that weight of the rifle is going to sit back there a little bit more so it might feel a little bit it's basically going to make the pack feel heavier um but not not significant so um yeah if you if you're got it working and you like it then that's totally fine okay and then the other one was i'm i'm probably gonna i'm the guide talked like it was a good idea to have two pads, one closed cell foam and one inflatable. So I'm, I'm probably bringing one of those like Z pad collapsible deals. Do you guys run those on the bottom of your pack? Like most backpackers do, or do you just pin them between the lid and the pack? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Uh, they're so light. You could certainly run it off the bottom of the pack. Uh, it, it's interesting. He recommends that it's just something I've, Certainly I've, uh, haven't packed and don't plan to pack. Um, I'm make sure you got a good patch kit, but I've in the last 15 years of backpacking, I think I've had two flats. Maybe I've just been lucky, but I do do pay attention, you know, bef- when you're pitching the tent, uh, what's underneath it while you're pitching it. Uh, and I'll, I'll spend an extra few minutes every time, you know, usually I'll just take my bare hand and rub it over the ground. Cause sometimes there's like a little sharp you know, stub from a branch or something like that there. Um, but yeah, in general, it's usually not an issue. So, and if you're packing, if you're doing a, so they want you to use a bivy sack inside the tent. Is that what they had recommended? No, I think the bivy sack is for when we're away from the tent, if we're okay. spending the night on the mountain. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I would think that'd be unnecessary. It's nice to have those little as a sitting pad. Um, but uh, obviously, you know, if the guide recommends it, um, he probably knows something about the terrain of the country up there that, that I don't. Uh, maybe wherever you're pitching tent, you're on top of really sharp rocks and whatnot, and it, it is critical. So, Cool. Well, thank you, guys. Appreciate your time. Thank you. I'm, it's, uh, I'm excited to, to hear about this hunt, man, to get you back on the podcast and hear yeah. about the adventure and see some pictures. Yeah, I'm excited as well. And I look forward to hearing how your, your, your sheep hunt goes, Steve, and your goat hunt goes, Mark. Well, that is a wrap on this one. Again, it's crazy to think that right now as this episode's released, Joseph is out there. Maybe he's tagged out already. Maybe he is pursuing a ram this very day. We will find out on a future episode as we talk with Joseph after the hunt hear how it went, all the lessons he learned, the adventure he experienced, and more. If you guys haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. And once again, if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. I hope you guys get out and make some great memories here as we get rolling into hunting season. Enjoy it.